following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text is John chapter 6, verses 29 through 59. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word. To the adults in the house, how we doing? Good. Great to see y'all. I want to talk a little bit about um, blood, all right? And I know I'm not a vampire, um, but this text is about blood. And 
this text, this text is, is a, a text that obviously um, is, 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 is moving in a direction where things are shifting for the people that have gathered. We talked about last week this huge crowd, verses 1 through 15, that has gathered as a result of what Jesus is doing. They're hearing all throughout the land that this man that has come is, is, is doing miraculous things, and they want to be a part of that. And so they gather in big droves, 5,000-plus, gather to, to see him and to hear from him. And hopefully um, they're anticipating to be blessed by him in some shape, form, or fashion. And, and, and those folks do get a tremendous blessing. Jesus takes two fish, five loaves from a young poor boy, uh, most, more, more than likely because it's a poor man's, poor man's lunch. He takes two fish and five loaves from this young man. And, and he takes it and feeds 5,000 people. We called it last week the miracle buffet. It just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming until they got their fill. And then after everybody was full, they had 12 baskets left over, right? And these people are really psyched about that, which we'll get to in a second. But let me ask you a question. Anybody, anybody like steak? All right. How many people like your steak well done? My wife is the kind of person where it's like the steak pretty much has to be burned before she'll eat it, right? And I'm like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what's the use of it at this point. You know, it's tough, but, but she won't eat it any other way. She can't stand the sight of any pink, right? Shit, I don't know what it is. But how many, people, how many people like your steak like medium rare maybe? Okay, all right. So we got some folks who like medium rare and, and, and rare. Anybody in the house that even go to rare? All right, all right, vampires, okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I had a guy when I worked at a restaurant one time, he said pretty much, I said, hey, sir, how do you want your steak? He told me, he said, listen, um, just, you know, just, just take the cow, slap it on, slap it on the grill, and then, t- and then bring it to me. I mean, he, 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 didn't, he didn't want, he barely wanted it warm. I mean, it was like, I was like, man, brother, this is like raw meat. This is not, this is not food. You're not supposed to eat this. I think, I think there's some kind of food poisoning rules that we have against this. But, but there are some people, in the, and there are some people in the room that like their steak very rare. Okay, now, how many people like chicken? Anybody in the house? All right. All right, better be some white people. Raise your hand. We're not going to be stereotypical in here and say just all the black folks like chicken. All right, raise your Okay, good. All right, excellent. How many people like your chicken medium rare. Anybody in the house? Nah, right? You're repulsed by that. That's, that. That sounds like poisoning, right? Some of you guys were ready to run to the bathroom right now. Well, the Jews thought when they think about meat, all meat for them had to be cooked without blood, okay? There should, should be no traces of blood in their food. And so, because they cooked in such a way, or because they thought of food in such a way where there should be no traces of blood, what Jesus is about to share with them is repulsive to them, all right? It's repulsive to them. And they miss it, which they miss a lot oftentimes. Not only do the crowds miss it, but even many of Jesus' disciples miss it, which we'll talk about next week. But what he's sharing with them is something that we all need to pay attention to because he's, he's basically teaching them what it means to embrace him as God. So, next day, verse 22, it says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So after the thousands are fed from this miracle, right, this, mir this miracle of feeding with two fish and five loaves of bread, the disciples head back over to the west bank, right? They go to the west side of the sea, and, and, and Jesus hangs back on the east side of the sea, and he catches up with them, though, later, okay? And the, and the way he catches up, and it's seen in verses 16 through 21, is he literally walks on the water to get to them. Now, understand, this isn't the normal way that we catch up with each other when we, when we part ways. Jesus literally gets on the sea. He waits for the sea to be um, um, very turbulent and waves and strong winds are all over the place. Um, me and my wife had the pleasure of taking a cruise, the first cruise we've ever taken, um, just two months ago. And on that cruise, this massive boat, which is basically, basically like a city, right? This massive boat can take all sorts of tossing and turning without moving, but eventually if the waves begin to get strong enough, this massive boat, this tons and tons and tons of steel can be rocked about. And so here we are in this turbulent situation with winds and waves moving all over the place, and here's this normal-sized man, normal-sized height, normal-sized weight most likely, walking on it. He's not, it's not just that he's walking on calm water. He's literally walking on the kind of water that even boats have trouble navigating. Now picture that. And this is how he catches up with him. As a matter of fact, Jesus, and we talked about this last week, Jesus is constantly through this text because this is the time of the Passover. He's constantly through this text dropping dimes, right? Uh, and for the uninitiated, that means assist. He's assisting them. Some of you guys are like, dimes? He's leaving money somewhere? No, he's, he's assisting. He's assisting them and helping them understand that he is the prophet that has come that was declared by Moses, that the, the one to come after. Moses. And so instead of him parting the waters, he said, I don't need to part the waters. I can walk on them. It doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how much wind. It doesn't matter how many waves are there. I can walk on them. The disciples are mortified, but nevertheless, he gets on the boat. And once he gets on the boat, everything is cool, and they end up on the other side of the sea. As he gets there, he's saying, the disciples are mortified, and he says, it is I. Do not be Afraid, which is which, by the way, is exactly what he says to you or me as followers, as we feel stranded in the midst of the storms of our life, and oftentimes he appears to not be there like he appeared to not be there for the disciples in this moment. He says, Hey, fear not, I am here. Now we probably could spend a lot of time walking through that, but our focus this morning is on the discussion that led to the breakup of Jesus with these crowds. Verse 22 through 24, reading it, you would not think this is where this is going because these people are following Jesus. They are super excited about what happened the day before. So excited that they look for Jesus, they can't find Jesus. Now they know that the disciples took the only boat that was there that day. And so they take the boats that have come back to shore the next day and they say, hey, we're going to go find him. Now, they don't know where he is. They don't even know that, that he actually left, right? Because there was only one boat there that day. But check out how desperate they are to find him. 
that basically on a hunch, on a whim, they say, let's get in the boat and let's go see if we can catch up with them. They don't get a word that he's there. They don't have any assurances that he's there, but that is how bad they want to find him. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting is how desperate one can be to find Jesus while simultaneously not be interested in understanding who he really is and what he ultimately calls them to. These people are desperate to find the man. And yet what we're about to find out is they really have no interest in following him. Verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because of the signs, but you are, but, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they asked, where where, where did you go? We, we, We were looking for you. When did you get here? Because we only saw one boat and your disciples took it. How did you get here? Jesus spends no time answering that question. Instead, Jesus gets to, as as we've been seeing, as we've been walking through John, we've been seeing this over and over again, he gets to the heart of the matter. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you're hoping that I got another 10-piece bucket, right? That's why you're following. That's, that's That's why you're jumping on boats. That's why you're looking all through town for me. And then you don't see me in town, so you jump on a boat and you drive all across or you or you sail all across to the other bank looking for me. You're looking for me in hopes that I will keep the belly full. Matter of fact, you're working for it, right? Putting in effort, searching, find looking, digging, uncovering. Asking questions, did you find, did you know where Jesus went? Do you know, really putting in effort, but what are you putting in effort for? You're putting in effort in hopes that I'll keep filling your belly, your physical belly. Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't work, don't search for me in hopes that I will keep the belly full. You tracking with that, Anybody? How many, how many times do we search? How many times do we labor? How many times do we work, right, looking for Jesus to keep what? This full. We figure if we keep running, if we keep doing, then he'll do what? He'll do this. He'll do that. We'll put him in our debt. Hopefully he'll owe us something, right? He'll owe us a blessing. Jesus says don't work for that. Don't work for that. Well, okay, well, what do, what, do, what do we do then, Jesus? He says, rather work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God has set his seal. Then they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What what work is included in getting this eternal life that you're offering? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is faith. Faith is your work. Does that make sense? Faith is your work. As a matter of fact, faith drives all other work. As we grow in our trust for God, as we grow in our trust of God, then all the other works that follow or all the other works that we should expect to follow do follow. 
He says, believe on me. That is the only work necessary. That is the only work required is faith. Paul says that we're saved by faith apart from works, right? So it's not works that's driving this, driving us towards this blessing of eternity. It's trust in Christ that's driving us towards this blessing. And in trusting Christ, our works are fueled. The things that we do for him find motivation. They find grounding. So that's what he's telling them. He's saying, hey, don't worry about, don't worry about chasing after me, right? If you're looking for something to do, then believe me. Trust me if you're looking for something to do. And it's after this call that those gathered to believe in him, or it's after Jesus calls them to believe in him, that it really begins to break down for the crowds. They begin to get a little feisty with them, start showing their true colors. So the first question they ask is, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from, from heaven to eat. Now, can you just ponder a moment the audacity of that statement? Show us a sign, Jesus. Now, remember, remember there was a sign yesterday, right? Two fish, five loaves of bread, fed 5,000 people. You remember that? Just happened. And now they're like, well, that was okay. It was all right. But God fed our forefathers with manna from heaven for 40 years. What about that? You just fed us for a day. Do you have any more signs? Do you have any special signs to show us that you really are who you say you are? Notice the work. Notice the wording, verse 30. What work do you perform? In other words, in other words, they were right, they were saying, okay, so Jesus says, don't do the work that leads to perishable food, do the work that leads to eternal life. They say, what work is that? He says, believe me. They say, okay, well, we got a question for you. What work are you performing? Right? Think about the audacity of that. You calling us to work? What you doing? You gonna feed us? Again? The doubter is always asking God to prove himself. No matter what he has done, no matter, no matter how long he has sustained us, no matter how long he's kept us, no matter what kind of miracle he has worked in your life, no matter how many inexplicable sights he shows you, the doubter will always say, well, well what else you got? For the one who is looking for a servant rather than a Lord, nothing is good enough to believe that they should lay down their desires and take on his. For the one who's looking for a servant, they will keep prodding and keep pushing. And so, like, after this blessing, they'll be like, well, well yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe he's real. But, I mean, obviously, look at all that's going on in the world. He can't be that real. Yeah, I know the sun is hanging in the, in, the, in the suspended in the universe and doing its thing, and it hasn't melted us to, to a crisp yet, but you got to think about all these other things that's happening. The doubter will always find room to doubt when they aren't ready to make Lord, Lord. They're ready to make Lord serve their desires, their agendas.
And, and, and they use, obviously this is a Passover reference, but they use bread to make their point. They say, hey, yeah, we know about last yesterday. That was good. That was, that was a pretty sweet trick. But our fathers had way more bread than that. And so you, you, hear, you hear what's happening, right? Jesus has already pulled their card by saying, you want, you're just here for the food. And they say, well, well, that's not really what we're here for. We're, we're here to see whether you are who you say you are. That's what we're here to see. And if you just happen to put some food down here, that's fine too. It is on this that Jesus seizes an opportunity to speak of himself as the bread. He says it in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. <laughs> right? You see, you see what it, every time bread is mentioned, they're like, yes, give me the bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So while the crowd continues to look for more food for their physical bellies, Jesus points them back to himself. For he knows that despite what they think or believe, they do not need another filling of the belly. They need a filling of the soul. They don't need someone who will serve their appetites. They need someone who will give them appetites for something greater. What the Israelites saw in the wilderness was a demonstration of God's mercy when he rained manna from heaven. But that was a demonstration in a temporal sense. Even though it was there for 40 years, it still was not built to last forever. But in Christ, the bread of life, they have in front of them a permanent manifestation of God's mercy. They have in front of them something that will sustain them or someone that will sustain them forever. He doesn't just give us manna from heaven, folks. He literally gives us himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, here's the problem, though. They won't come to him. They only came for a meal. And they don't trust him as Lord. They only trust him as one to serve their interest, their benefit, and their belly. Jesus knows this. He shares this. No miracle and no sign will ultimately sway those who are seeking the Lord of the universe to take the posture of servant in their life. The problem is not the evidence. As we see time and time again, the problem is the heart. The heart. The heart. He's shown them enough. They just won't believe. So despite everything the Lord has shown them, they still hold out their hand and they say, give me more, show me more, show me more. I want to see it. It is here that Jesus drops two very important gospel themes that everybody would do well to pay attention to, and that's this. One is God's sovereignty over us in our salvation, and two is God's securing of us in our salvation. God controls our salvation, and God keeps us in salvation. We want to think we're in sole control of this work. We want to think that we're the ones that's pulling this together. We want to think that we're the ones that's keeping us. 
But let's be honest, we are in no more control of what's going on than Jonah was in control of his obedience when he went to Nineveh, right? Jonah was on his way out of Nineveh. He was, far, he was going as far as he could away from Nineveh, and God himself literally pushed Jonah back into Nineveh. Does that make sense? And, and, and it's the same thing when you feel like, okay, yeah, I'm in control of all of this that's going on. Some of you can just even think about your salvation stories, right? Think about your testimonies. It was literally God pushing you into salvation. Sovereignty of God. if, If Jesus' mission was solely left in our hands to accomplish, right? If Jesus' mission depended solely on you and me to be obedient, he could hold no confidence that it would be accomplished. Jesus himself doesn't subscribe to that. He says, he he calls us to believe. He calls us to trust him. But he also declares that it is the Father who will ensure that the call is answered, not us. That's what he says in his text. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. The Father gives him those who belong to him. Verse 43, it says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father has to draw. That's what Jesus says, not me. Jesus says this on several occasions. He says it in John 10. He says, uh, verse 29 of chapter 10, is he's talking about the sheep. They hear his voice. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. My father who's given them to me. When he talks and he prays to his father in, in, one, of the, in one of the last prayers of, 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 his, of his life on earth, they call it the high priestly prayer, in the, in the 17th chapter of John, he begins it by saying, he lifted his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. He says it several times. He says it in verse 6 of chapter 17. He says it in verse 9 of chapter 17, constantly, uh, constantly driving the point home that this is not all you. This is not all us. He doesn't accomplish the mission of God based on us. He accomplished the mission of God because God himself is pushing you towards him. But not only is he pushing you towards him, but when you get there, he's keeping you in him. He says in verse 37, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the question is this. Why does he keep you? Why does he keep you? And the answer he gives you, the reason he keeps you is because it is the will of the Father that Jesus keeps you. And because he desires to serve the Father, 
it would be one of the greatest shames and greatest dishonors of Jesus to let you go. Do you understand? So he says, the Father gives them, and out of obedience to my Father, I will keep them when they are received. I'm not letting them go. They're not going anywhere. Now, some people discern that to mean that once I, once I pray a prayer, right, and I say, hey, Lord, I'm good, save me, then that's it. I'm in, right? It's a, right? Kind of like the Kroger Plus card, right? Once you sign up, you can't get out. You're in. And so, and so some people kind of see this in, in the same way. Once I, once I sign up, you know, I am in. There is nothing I can do. But hold on. It can't be true based on Scripture. Walk with me. First of all, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there can be someone that makes a confession and says, hey, Lord, I'm with you. He says some of those folks aren't getting in. So what does that mean? He continues, he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? He goes on to say, I never knew you. There's a clue. There's a clue. He says to the people that say, Lord, Lord, and then they're just kind of off to do whatever it is they want to do for the rest of their lives. He, he doesn't say that I knew you and then I kicked you out. He says, I never knew you. That means something. As a matter of fact, John echoes this in the, in the epistle or the letter of 1 John when he talks about a group of people that were once there with the Christians. They were walking with the Christians, and then eventually they faded off. And John says they were, they were with us, but then they left us because they were never of us to begin with. Same language, right? I never knew you. So he talks about people that kind of hang out for a little bit, Talk, and, and, and he even tells a story about a seed that's planted, a parable, parable of the sower. Anybody ever heard that parable? Where he talks about some, some of the seeds that are cast, they hit ground, you know, they never sprout. Some of the seeds that are cast, they take a little bit of sprouting, right? They hit some ground, they break through a little bit, and they sprout up, but their roots aren't deep enough, and eventually they wither away. Does that make sense? And so what he's talking about is not people that were saved and then fell out of salvation. What he's talking about is that people that were never saved to begin with. Jesus himself talks about that when he talks about Judas. Judas hung out with us, right? Hung out with us, rolled with us for three years, prayed with us, fasted with us, went to the temple with us. But when, Ju when Jesus is praying his prayer in John chapter 17, he says, Lord, I have kept all that you have given me except for the one, the son of perdition, which, by the way, he wasn't intended to be kept. Why? Because he was never yours. Does that make sense? So what is Jesus saying when he's saying that he's keeping us then? This is what he's saying. It means when a, when a person genuinely pleads to the Lord to become Lord of his life, the Lord moves in and takes action at the beginning of that work that is guaranteed to be completed to the end. He says it in Philippians chapter 1 through, through his vessel Paul, the apostle Paul, when Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a work, a good work in you, will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, if he starts it, he will finish it. 
And if it doesn't finish, it was because it never started. Now, there's something in Hebrews that really shakes us, but it talks about people, and you can read this later on, Hebrews 4 and 5 in those areas, but it talks about people that have tasted, tasted, right, of the goodness of God. Tasted of the goodness of God. They, 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 they've, they, they've seen the Spirit at work. They've, they've been in the presence and observed the Spirit at work, and yet they wither off, fade away. It's not because those people were saved. It's because they were never saved. They were Judas, in a sense. But those that are saved, this is the assurance that you have, right? That Jesus is so committed to keeping you because he is so committed to the Father that he loves. He will not let you go because he loves his Father. The last thing he would do would be to disappoint and disobey. That's the assurance that you have in your keeping. They're not impressed, however. The Jews, in verse 41, they grumble about him, right? They say, am I the bread? Or, or, he, or because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say he came down from heaven? I don't get this. I know that boy's mama. Now he's talking about he come from heaven. What kind of craziness is this? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We talked about that. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen, has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father, talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I find it interesting that they grumble. Because we know some grumblers. Exodus 16, Exodus 17, they're, they're people, their fathers, the, the people that they are talking about right now, when, when they were constantly grumbling, right? And so here they have, right, they're, they're talking about, hey, well, yeah, you gave us, you know, gave us a nice fish dinner yesterday, but, you know, our, our, our fathers, they had, they had food for 40 days. And their fathers grumbled, not 40 days, 40 years, and their fathers grumbled. After that, after literally food from heaven rained down, you move into the next chapter, and they're grumbling. Where's the water? Did you bring us out here to die? They're grumbling. And so, and so here's, here's what's crazy about it. They had this manifestation of God, this temporary manifestation of God, and they grumbled. And now here are their, here are their children who have the actual eternal manifestation of God in front of them, and what are they doing? Grumbling. 
we, we would like to think that when the situation changes, right, so would our, so would our trust. That, that, if, that, well, if Jesus, you line my pocket with a little more money, I'll trust you. Jesus, if you do this, I'll trust you. Jesus, if you do that, if you fix this relationship, I'll trust you. If you fix my kids, Jesus, I'll trust you. It, we, we would like to think that we would trust Jesus under the right circumstances and under the right conditions. But what the Israelites show us is that it really doesn't matter. He can rain matter for 40 years. He can make a buffet out of two pieces of fish. Still going to wrestle with trust because we haven't really got to the heart of the matter, which is embracing him. Does that make sense? Nothing is good enough. Even the ultimate bread is insufficient. And the grumbling continues. But in closing, we get to this bloody meal part. Verse 52. says, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, as we talked about at the very beginning, this is repulsive for them. They're like, okay, this, this guy's lost it. He's completely lost it. I was down. I thought he was going to keep feeding us. Kind of crazy. We probably need to find somewhere else to go. But, they, but, but, but they're, not willing, they're, they're not willing to dial in because they don't really want to be with him anyway. See, Jesus is pointing them to something deeper. He's pointing them first. You get, a, you get a clue in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He talks about this word abiding is used often. But in particular, in one, in one special way, it's used is in John 15, where Jesus says in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide, abide. He's talking, he's, he's talking about dwelling in him and him dwelling in us. That's a clue, right? Talks about this flesh and this blood. Talking about dwelling in him and him dwelling in us. But also there's another clue. If you look at verse 54, he says this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that raise him up on the last day has been used often, hasn't it, as we've been reading. And one place that it was used was in verse 40. So look at verse 40. He says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day.
I will raise him up on the last day. Same language, but what's happening in the beginning is different. One place he's talking about eating flesh and blood, the other place he's talking about believing and trusting in him. There's another clue, right? So when you talk about flesh and blood, you talk, what he's saying is that our belief should be in such a way that he, he abides in us. We literally take him in. It's, 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 not, it's not the kind of belief that we kind of hold him at bay and say, yeah, I believe you existed. I, I do, but just stay over there. Let me do my thing. Let me live my life. Does that make sense? No, it's literally the kind of trust, the kind of belief where we indwell him. He becomes us, and our life is no longer our own, but our life begins to be wrapped and intertwined into his. He's saying, unless you do that, you can't have eternal life. You can't keep me at bay. You can't set your own agenda. You can't do all the things that you want to do, and every once in a while we'll put on Jesus too, right, like, like a coat or something. No, he says, hey, you must, in, you must indwell me. You must take me in. I must abide in you. Your life, the book of Colossians says, must be hidden in me. You get lost in him. No longer I, but Christ that's in me. That's what it means to eat the flesh and drink the blood. Does it mean communion? Does it mean last supper? Not to these folks. You have to understand, when this was being, this was being shared, he had, he had not yet instituted the last supper. Last supper happens at, guess what? Guess when? The last supper he had. So he has plenty more meals before this happens, but, but as we eat the bread and drink the wine that represents his blood and his flesh, we should be reminded of the call to indwell Christ. Amen? Amen. They might not have uh, recognized that, but we should, as we eat and drink, we should be reminded that this is me not just saying, Christ, I believe you, but stay over there, but this is me saying, my life is hidden in yours. Not I, but you. Does that make sense? He closes by saying in the last verse, verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He says, if you indwell me, if you take me in, you truly say, yes, come in, be, set, set shop, set resident, be Lord. He says, you won't starve. He said, you won't eat and get hungry again. He said, you won't eat and die. As spectacular as the manna was that rained down from heaven, all of the forefathers that ate it eventually died. Because that manna wasn't meant to sustain them for eternity. But this manna is. Christ is meant to keep you for eternity. So if you would eat of his flesh, drink of his blood, if you would indwell him, if you would say, I trust you, Lord, with my life, no longer my life, it's yours. Take it. Do what you will. Do what you will. 
something. He says, you will never, never, never be hungry again. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you and give you all the praise and all the glory and honor. We thank you, Lord God, that the blood that you spilled on the cross of, on the cross of Calvary, that it was that blood, Lord God, that makes it possible for us to see eternal life. The, the, the body, Lord God, that hung on that cross, that it's that body that makes it possible for us to see eternal life. Lord God, help us to take in that sacrifice. Help us to internalize that sacrifice. Help us to trust you in a way where our lives are no longer our own, but our lives are hidden in you. And Father, as we walk in that hiddenness, as we walk in that abiding, that Father, you'll walk with us. As we walk in that abiding, and Lord God, we, we, as we tend to sway from the left to the right, we are so grateful and so thankful, Lord God, that you have called your blessed son to keep us. And so, Father, we pray, Lord God, and we ask and we plead that you would, that you would by your son's work, that you would keep us when we stray and when we wander until that final day, Lord God, in which we'll see you face to face. We love you. We thank you. Give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.